0: You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. All right, so today is in the Christian calendar Ascension Sunday. Uh, If you don't follow the Christian calendar, it may mean nothing to you, but if you're part of this church family, we track with the Christian calendar, particularly on some big days because it pulls us out of our normal conversations to remember the story that forms us. Uh, We've said this many a times. Time, time in the form of a calendar, creates culture. If it's uh, July 4th, uh, we know what to do because of our American calendar. Calendars mark time, and time creates cultures. And Yahweh, with the people of Yahweh in the Hebrew Scriptures, marked time with calendar, and calendar with festivals, and feasts, and celebrations, and moments of solemn uh, humility. And the Christian church Uh, in its inception, after the day of Pentecost and on, as it established itself by the Spirit of God, did the same thing. Started creating a calendar for itself in the same history that we would be formed by our own Christian story. And so, 40 days ago, we celebrated Easter. And now we celebrate Ascension. Next week will be Pentecost. And so we track with our own story. So, if you have uh, your Bibles, open up to the book of Acts chapter 1. Verse 4, while Jesus was with the disciples, he commanded him not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. This, he said, is what you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up. Say taken up. He was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven. Some translations say he was taken up into heaven. That's actually a better translation than what I'm using here. We're gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Listen to that refrain, into heaven, going into heaven. Seriously, when thinking of the ascension of Jesus, we often think of it in terms of something like the absence of Jesus. Jesus leaves. Because he does. He just, he leaves. We, this, this idea of ascension is when Jesus floats up into the air to leave earth and to reign in heaven. And you see it in the imagery of the pictures. You could even see it in the worship guide. I mean, it's hard to find something that doesn't have, I and mean, that's probably the, one of the, the, the worship, the, the art for the worship guide. probably one of the only ones where we found where Jesus' feet weren't dangling somewhere. Um, But this idea that Jesus is is floating up into heaven, almost as if going out into space, that is how we interpret taken up into heaven. Taken up into heaven is that Jesus floats up. And that's how paintings have interpreted this. That Jesus is waving by to the disciples as He rises to finally go home. He's evacuated this world and left us in it to carry on His work. He sends the Spirit Himself, but He just kind of leaves us to do His job, or to do the job that He's commissioned to us. And many times, if we don't think this through, ascension becomes about absence. With Jesus' feet dangling in the air and leaving us. But the ascension isn't about absence at all. It's about glorification. Jesus hadn't left us, we know, despite what we feel. He isn't absent in our lives, because He hasn't actually left us. But still, it remains that in the scheme of Jesus' ministry, right, when you look at what he's done, the ascension is often an overlooked event when it comes to considering all that He has been about. Like considering His life of love and His ministry where it heals the hurting, that welcomes the unwelcomeable, that dines with the dejected, that ends in a trial that leads to a death sentence as an enemy of the state and crucifixion, and then miraculously overcomes the powers of fear and death and sin and death, the resurrection. And then just a few verses of Scripture that uses a language that in their day makes far more sense than ours. He goes up into heaven's Up into the heavens. In that language, heaven. But here's the thing. In the Scripture, in the day of the text, in the language of the Scriptures, up in the heavens is a poetic expression of royal ascendancy. Say royal ascendancy. That's what up into the heavens means. It's a poetic expression of royal ascendancy, of exaltation, of glorification, of supreme power to us. It has no political meaning. But the thing that we don't oftentimes understand about the text is in the text, it has profound political meaning because it means royal ascendancy. Now Paul, he doesn't miss this in his own language. If you listen closely to what he writes. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. Listen to what he says. I pray that the perception of your mind may be enlightened, The perception of your mind. We are in this series, and part of what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, and we will for two more weeks, is the idea of training our minds. Because our minds are trained by everything imaginable, but we we have to train our minds for the things of the gospel, right? So Paul prays, I pray that perception of your mind may be enlightened, so you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the glorious riches of his inheritance among among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his, say it with me, power to us who believe, according to the working of his vast strength. He demonstrated this power in the Messiah, which is the Jewish word for king, by raising him from the dead and seating him at his, say it with me, right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion and every title given. Just in case we want to water this puppy down, and not associate this with a real political reality, he's the word title given. So Paul's covering all his bases because he knows that we get a little sketchy when we start talking about things like this. Every title given, not only when? In this age, but also the age to come. So when does all that begin? Now. And the age to come. And he put everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for, that was good, that was good, the church. (laughs) Man, if we could just time that every time, I could do a dramatic pause, we could do that sound, boom, boom, right? Like that's great. The drama. Put him as head as everything for the church, which is his body, read this part with me, all of it. The fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. So here's the thing. The end of the gospel, which is how we do it. Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins, and he was raised from the dead so we could go to heaven when we die. That's not the end of the gospel. The end of the gospel story of Jesus is not and Jesus went off to heaven, but someday he'll come back and bring with him the kingdom of God. If we imagine the ascension in this way, we'll easily, albeit maybe too easily, believe that we're free to run our own lives, that we're free to live in the world the way we want and, and what we assume is the absence of Christ because he raised and he's, he's gone up and one day he's going to return and make it all right and until he does, we'll just wait. We'll just wait for that to happen. And we'll lament the brokenness of this world and we'll say, what do you do? We'll resign ourselves to sicknesses and we'll say, what do you do? Imagining the ascension in this way reduces Jesus from being the eternal Lord, God's right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also to come, to being some sort of Lord elect. It's going to be installed when He returns. And if we imagine Jesus as being up there in heaven, waiting to come back someday and begin his reign, then we have no other option but to return to the idea that we're really in charge. The idea that we can manage or control our lives and the circumstances that surround them. And the beauty of Ascension Day, as basic as this is, is this just a one really strong dose of being reminded? That the ascension of Christ is not about absence, but about His glorification. That Jesus is Lord now. He's not Lord-elect. He's not Lord when He returns. But He's King of kings and Lord of lords now. Jesus has been seated at the right hand of God, which in the Apostle Paul's society means absolute authority over all things. Again, another political term. Listen to Paul's words again. Verse 20. He demonstrated His power in the Messiah by raising Him from the dead and seating Him at, the right hand, at His right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority and power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He put everything under His feet and appointed Him as head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of the One who fills all things in every way. The fullness of the One, the One, the One who fills all things in every way. I want to hang on that for a minute. See, before the, before the ascension, Jesus was either over here or he was over there. Like either there went Jesus on a boat, or there went Jesus in the town of Galilee. But now, now, his reign, his rule, his presence, and all of his godness is Everywhere. There's not one place, in Paul's theology at least, there's not one place in the entire cosmos that the presence of Christ cannot enter in. I'll say that again. There's not one place in the entire cosmos that the presence of Christ cannot enter in. He feels all things in every way. And what does this mean? If you have confessed that Jesus is Lord, you never have to wonder where Christ is. You're going to feel it. There's no doubt. You're going to feel the absence of God. But if you've confessed Jesus as Lord and you remember ascension, you never have to really wonder where the presence of Christ is. You may wonder why Christ isn't doing stuff. You may wonder why God isn't doing what He needs to do. You may wonder why He's seemingly sitting quiet or idle in the midst of it all. But the one thing, the one thing you and I do not have to wonder is if Christ is actually there. There is no domain in which a child of God stands over which Jesus actually isn't Lord. He's not far off. He's not absent. He's not separate from you. He's not not away from you. He's not abandoning you. He's not absent from you. He's actually with you. And it may not feel this way. I want to be real honest with that, right? Like, it may not feel this way. The circumstances surrounding your life may suggest otherwise. Deep sadness may still be your battle. Your relationship with someone may still be broken. Your finances may still seem thin. Your body may still feel as though it's slowly decaying. The anxiety you experience may still run rampant with your mind. Your job may still be a misery. Your children may still be a mess. The loneliness you may feel may still drain your joy. The sickness may still make you weak. Mass shootings, gun violence may touch people we love. And all of this threatens the claim that Jesus is ascended Lord. All of these facts on the ground threatens the idea that there's not a small crack of the world in which Christ cannot be found. Which is why I think Ascension Day is important, because it's about retraining our minds. See, I'm playing on that term that Paul has commanded several times in his letters to retrain, to train the mind. Christ has ascended. He's been glorified. He's Lord of all. And His glorified presence fills all things in every way. He is in all of it, All of it. With you. He's in all of it. With us. He's this all-powerful, absolute authority of all who sometimes does not do what we need him to do. And then it becomes a struggle. Because we're raised up in a church to believe in him. But The problem for many of us is that we believe in him, but we don't believe him. It's easier to believe in him than it is to actually believe Him. Especially when boots on the ground say otherwise, right? See, the thing about ascension is it's actually about power. Say power. It's about power. It's about remaining loyalty to Him. Remaining loyal. It's about trusting Him. It's about some of those things. There's no doubt. But it's about Power. That every child of God has been granted the right to be called his child. That's the biblical language. You now have a right in the reign of sin and death to call yourself a child of the king. That is your right. We love our rights, don't we? I find it interesting that the church argues over rights, but not that right. Like society presses against us and we'll argue about rights and rights and rights. But when society presses against us, nobody talks about the right that we have to be called children of God. You have the power of God available to you and to me. And I realize that that's a struggle because we have prayed for the power of God to be manifest in ways over this world or over people we love and we haven't seen it work. But the problem with a lot of that is so many of us are so knuckled down into this life that we forget that in Christ we actually don't die. So the one thing that society has over us, which is death, is the one thing that Jesus overcame because He knew that would be the one thing that holds us down. And then He says to us, I need you to trust that you have power to overcome that too. Now, I'm not wanting to try that out anytime soon. Right? Like, like there's no light. Like, well, let me test those waters. That's where faith comes into play. But I think that's part of why the ascension is there. Is that all of the authority has been granted from God to Christ as the ascended Lord over everything. And then Jesus in turn grants that authority to His people. And says all authority has been given to me, I'm given to you now. But we don't live that way. Because we're so locked down in how bad things happen that we fail to sometimes see that Christ is in the midst of it all, redeeming all things, making all things do, and even the worst thing that could happen to me doesn't destroy me at all. Like even in those moments when there are no answers to the sadness and the sorrow and the suffering, and when all we feel is absence, we're given the divine privilege to cry out to the ascended God. Like, we're given the right to go to Him and complain. With all of our lament and anger and frustration, we're granted with the divine privilege as God's children to embrace the spirit of the psalmist and lay out these protests to God. In the spirit of Job, wonder and question. And the beauty of the ascension and taking time to remember it is that we can be assured of what the psalmist and the prophets actually did not know. That because Jesus is ascended Lord and glorified Lord over all things and fills all things in every way, we never have to wonder if He's with us. And I sometimes have wondered when I've entered into places of suffering if I would sort of transfer my mind from wondering why God isn't with me to realizing that God is with me and move away from wondering why God isn't doing what I need Him to do and just leaning into the fact of my faith that God is with me even in the wandering. We have a choice. That's our battle. See, that's the battle of Christianity. Because Jesus is no longer found in some sort of temple or over here or over there. Jesus fills all things in every way, and the battle of our faith is learning how to live into the reality of that confession that comes from ascension that Christ fills all things in every way, and living in the tension of realizing that the presence of Christ is there in the worst of the situations of the world and then wondering why he's not doing what we need him to do about it. But Paul would have an answer for that too. And it's not just some sort of little platitude you get from a Christian bookstore. See, Paul seems to believe, listen Ephesians 1, 22, 23. King Jesus is the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one. Who's the fullness of Christ now? Who? The church. The church is the fullness of Christ. That's Paul's theology. I know that's maybe not our experience, but that's actually what Paul would believe. Paul seems to believe that the same power which raised to crucify Jesus from the dead and glorified Him in triumphant victory in every other authority and human power is the same power that God wants to demonstrate through His church. That he wants to demonstrate it through you and me—the victory of Jesus over the reign of sin and death, with all its evil being exercised in the world—is not just a song we sing or a confession we make. It's a victory to be made tangible and real, and is waiting to be carried out through His followers. The victory of God is waiting to be carried out through His followers. See that little sign over there says "peace." That was done by a bunch of children in, in Covenant Christian School and. And they were studying the life of Oscar Romero, who was a who was a bishop in a time of El Salvador in civil war. And he refused to live a life of luxury. And he refused to live a life of safety. So he entered into life with the peasants of El Salvador. And he got to know them. And he got to love them. And he heard their stories. And he started advocating for the poor because he thought, if I'm not sure what Jesus is about, at least he's about the poor. And he started advocating for the poor. And as a result, Oscar Romero ticked off the right and the left of his political day by calling them to the politics of the kingdom of God because he believed this. He believed the church was the kingdom and that there was a politic that the church had to live into. And he proclaimed that politic, a politic of love and mercy and grace. And he made the right and the left angry. So angry, in fact, that one day when he was literally distributing the bread and the cup, the body and the blood of Jesus to the followers of Christ, they assassinated him. People busted into the door and shot him at the table, shot him dead. And just before that, he had released a a letter talking about how he felt that that was going to happen. But he was all right with that. Because he refused to live as if he didn't have the power of God granted him to enter into the suffering and the brokenness. He refused to cower to fear because he believed that the authority of God had been given to him. And his death sparked a shift in the entire movement of civil war that was taking place. The death of a Christ follower, a faithful Christ follower, shook a civil war to a stillness. Now that's living in the power of God. The victory of God is to be exercised through the church. And here's the thing, not just as individuals. There's a reason why we do baby dedication, because we need each other. This isn't just about Oscar Romero. This is about the movement of Christianity that flourished as a result of his own martyrdom. That the church began to rise up and embrace the politics of the kingdom of God rather than the politics of El Salvador, Salvador. And started moving into the realities and the works and the promises and the love of God in Christ for all people. And it shifted over the course of time tied. We need each other because this experience of the victory of Jesus is not going to be experienced by me all the time. And when the victory of Jesus is not experienced by me because the reign of sin and death has come and crashed into my life, there's going to be someone in the community of God who's not experiencing that, who is experiencing the victory, not experiencing the sadness. When I come into the presence of my brother or sister who's experiencing the victory of God, when I am not because the reign of sin and death has crashed into me, I then get to live into the realities and the promises of Scripture. I then get to be with you, and you get to share and bear my burden and lead me back into the victory of God. That's called church. And that's not a song we sing. That's a way of life we're supposed to embrace. We need each other. Church is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about the saved. It only involves the saved, but only when the saved are involved. (laughs) It's realizing that the triune God, who in and of himself is community, has called us to a communal life whereby the power of God is experienced. I've used this before, and I just I want to I use this as, a, as an example, and I've said it before. So it was one of my first Sundays. Well, I'm going to give two examples. The problem is it's going to make Shirley Brooks look really good. <laughs> All right, and I think she does, but, but this is going to be problematic for Shirley. So Shirley, close your ears. So I come one Sunday. I'm a hot mess when it comes to my son. We had just moved here, and he was, he was little, and he was sick, and he was throwing up. Um, he was just very, very sick, and it was a Sunday morning. I hadn't been here long. We hadn't been here long. I come, and I'm all sorts of anxiety, all sorts of anxiety, because he had chronic asthma, and for him, a cold turns into something like gnarly, and I'm just, you know, I'm just immature enough in my faith where that kind of thing just would throw me off, and my mind is scattered in hundreds of different places, and it's Sunday, and it's the first service, it's first gathering, and I haven't told a soul, haven't shared a soul about any to anyone about my son's not about my son not feeling well, not, not a soul. And I come up here, and I'm, I'm standing in my, you know, this is because this is where preachers are supposed to be, on repenter's row. And so I'm here, always repenting, right? Like, I'm here, uh, and, and all of a sudden, uh, during one of the songs, Shirley Brooks gets up, and she comes to me. Now, I've known Shirley a little bit by now, not a whole lot, but I had visited with her, and I thought, hey, I get to pray with Shirley Brooks. Like, that's impressive. I get to pray with Shirley. Like, that's what I thought. And I know Shirley, it's embarrassing, but you know, I, I'm embarrassing. So, so I, I thought, I get to pray with her. I really thought that I get to pray with Shirley. And Shirley comes to me, and she says to me, the Lord has a word for you. And the Lord wants you to know that your son is about to be healed. Now, I'm not really interested in whether or not this fits your theology. But I'm just telling you, truth is truth. So let him who have ears hear. That was the Spirit. I knew you were going to correct me. Let me get there now. Let me get there, Shirley. We ain't building an idol of you and putting it up here. I got you. Shirley comes to me and says, the Lord wants you to know that your son's going to be healed. Now, you need to know that doesn't fit my theology. I haven't told a soul. But I can't argue with the fact that the Spirit of God has told a daughter of God. You hear me that? You all hear me? The Holy Spirit of God has told a daughter of God who's willing to hear the Holy Spirit of God and willing to do what the Holy Spirit of God wants her to do that there is a fear in my bones. I've got to give a word to God's people. You've got to understand that this here, I stand accountable to Jesus for every word I speak. So that is no light matter. I do not take that lightly. And I didn't know what I was going to do that day. You just have to know my anxiety. The Holy Spirit tells a daughter of God who obeys the Holy Spirit of God to come to tell the child of God who's not feeling victory right now that the victory is imminent. And again, you don't have to believe this. I'm just telling what happened. So we pray. The Holy Spirit prays. You know, the Bible says the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings and utterings that we don't understand when we have no words in which we ought. So what I do is I believe it. I choose. Say choose. I choose to believe it. Because I don't feel it, doesn't feel my theology, can't find a verse for it. So I text Allison, and I say, I need you to believe right now that Ian's going to be healed. I just need you to believe it. She texts me back. He stopped throwing up, and now he's playing with his cars on the floor. Now you, brother and sister, can make that all about my son's healing if you'd like. I'd say that's not it at all. I would say that that experience for me by God and His grace through a daughter by the power of the Holy Spirit was simply an illustration so that maybe one day I would wake up out of my incredible theological stupidity of boxing God and not availing myself to the power of God in the world. Because my experience of God, of other deaths and other things, did not align with that. So I really believe that in God's grace and mercy, He gives us those moments, not so we can celebrate the healing, but so we can celebrate that God's power is at work through His people. Because Jesus is ascended Lord. And the question for us is, do we believe it? And that's my point. Some of us will and some of us won't. And it is okay when you don't. It's okay when you don't, because there will be somebody in your church family who do, and God's Spirit will move even in that. But only if we take seriously our own confession and our rule of life, only if we take seriously what happens when God's Holy Spirit confronts us through the brother and sister in Christ among us and says to us, God has a word for you. And I get real skittish when people have a word for me from God. Because sometimes that's not a word from God, it's a word from them. And sometimes it's not that explicit. Sometimes it's simply a hug. Sometimes it's simply someone to sit with you. Sometimes it's someone to go with you. To do that hard thing you've got to do. And that is the power of God being put on display through His church. That is the reality of ascension. And so the short of it is, see, ascension is not just about you, and it's not just about me, it's about we. Ascension is about the community of faith who have been endowed the power of God through the ascended, glorified Lord of Christ who is never absent, always present, always at work in the world, coming together as a community to lean upon one another so that we can live when we leave as if we believe our own confession. And for those of us who struggle to believe our confession, when we leave, it's okay. Jesus Christ is with you. Let Him have it. Just let Him have it. And the people of God won't leave. Not if we're faithful. To me, the beauty of the ascension is that we can finally realize that we should lay down our idols and we should no longer live in denial. We can lay down our idols because the ascension of Jesus shows they have no power. We can refuse to live in denial of our suffering and brokenness because in the ascension and glorification of Jesus who fills all things, He's not far off. He's not absent. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God. And all things will fall in submission to Him. And if as the people of God, in all of our doubts and all of our struggles and in all of our fears, and in all of our joys and in all of our praise, if we would commit to cultivating lives of love and generosity and mercy and obedience to the Lordship of Jesus, we would then be living by what this Bible word means when it says the word, faith. And when some of us struggle and we're weeping, we will listen to Paul who also wrote, weep with those who weep. And when some of us are celebrating, we will rejoice with those who rejoice. We will lean into the ascension reality of Christ together, not as individuals but together. Press into the power of God together and see the power of God displayed through the people of God when we're faithful. I could stand up here and you know I could and talk about how the witness of this church has changed the city in which we live. I could talk about how the witness of this church has changed the county in which we live. And it is not because we're that good. It's because every now and then you catch a glimpse of what happens when the people of God rally around the purposes of God, where the power of God is put on display for the good of others. We can be that people. We have witnessed God's power. We've witnessed what we have felt many times, God's absence. But we have never lost God's presence. Because when he ascended as Lord, he ascended once and for all with a promise that he will return. And when he does, there will be no more wondering. There will be no more waiting. There will be no more questioning there will be no more faith because faith will become sight but in the meantime there will be all sorts of struggles and so every week we come we come to this table we come to this table to celebrate and remember and to retrain our minds of the life and the death and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus through the body and the blood of Christ that has set us free and liberated us into a life of love that is a life of divine power that is put on display through the community of God that is formed to be witnesses, a prophetic witness, a witness of love, a witness of the politics of Jesus in a world that is overrun by its own Babylonian politics to show that at the end of the day, Jesus has the final word. And we are his people. So wherever you are today, whether you faltered or whether you failed or whether you feel as though your faith is frail, you are invited to the table of Christ. This is his table. He is the host. You are welcome here. Every one of you are welcome here today because Jesus is Lord of this table. And whether you struggle to believe that he is here, if you can find the faith to come, come, and he will meet you here. So the bread that is his body, the cup that is his blood, the community of the saints coming to the table that has been left prepared for you. All are welcome to the table of God.